I hope that you pay attention to the bulletin. Amy and I have said, I don't know that we could write a sermon without putting together a church bulletin. Uh, all of our study comes through in the bulletin, the quotations, um, the litanies that we choose, the hymns that we pick. You've gotten the sermon today three times, thanks to Dan for his wonderful introduction to confession, thanks to Sharon for that magnificent prayer, and the third verse of the opening hymn was the sermon. I hope you're paying attention to all of that. We're thinking about the vision, new visions of the church, and our responsibility to see new visions and to communicate those. And I thought about this uh, poem that's on the front of your bulletin cover, A Vision by Wendell Berry, and those last two lines, this is no paradisal dream. It's not paradise, it's not easy, it's hardship is its possibility. That is our prayer as we begin, that God might be with us in the hardship of new visions, of seeing them, of moving together. I will read the scripture during the sermon and you'll be prepared to respond appropriately then. During this Easter season, we are considering the privilege of being part of the body of Christ. Not better than others, not set above all the rest, but the privilege of the vision we have been given. That vision is an understanding of God through the lens of resurrection, new life, new sight, new hope. It is affirmed by experiencing the risen Christ in corporate worship and in Christian fellowship, and in compassionate service. It is a privilege. And with that privilege come great responsibilities. To whom much is given, Jesus said, much more will be required. Today, the Christian church is in turmoil. Rather than standing above the political fray, that culture war that has pitted right against left, rather than standing as a voice of wisdom, a corporate life of integrity, an example of faithful consistency, the church has been enticed into the argument and is implicated along with the rest of our society. We are divided, broken, at war with one another within the church. I'm afraid to say sometimes more part of the problem than actively involved in the solution. A very long but good article in the Atlantic magazine called How, Poison, uh, How Politics Poison the Evangelical Church is worth your read. It spells this out in disturbing detail. The author, Tim Alberta, a self-proclaimed preacher's kid, says, I've spent my life watching evangelicalism morph from a spiritual disposition into a political identity. It's heartbreaking. It will take many years for us to understand all that has happened to and through the church in the last 20 years, the implication of our poison partisanship, the impacts of our cultural dysfunction, the consequence of a two-year COVID infection to the whole country. But no one can doubt that we are at a critical moment. We live in difficult days, and much change for the church is yet to come. But we must not lose heart. The church, along with the culture at large, is still grappling with four centuries of racial conflict, has yet to fully sanction the role of women in society, is still denigrating and dismissing homosexuals, cannot come to grip with the place of the immigrant among us, 
and is just beginning to grapple with the concept of non-binary sexuality. In the midst of these and other issues, I believe we have been given a new vision. And we, the church, are the people privileged by a steadfast belief in resurrection, new life, new sight, new hope. It is a privilege. And we who have seen must take responsibility for communicating that vision. Now, the context of today's scripture is not completely removed from our own, though on the surface it may sound foreign. The church, in this case the Jewish church, if I can borrow that Christian word to speak of our Jewish ancestors, the church was in turmoil. An itinerant rabbi, not trained in the academy, not sanctioned by the establishment, not approved by the temple, had created a stir among some of the Jewish community. After his death, his followers began to say that he had been raised from the dead and had given them a new calling to go into all the world and begin making disciples in his name. In fulfilling that great commission, some had even suggested that Gentiles, even Gentiles, were acceptable to God. Can you believe it? Even Gentiles. And what's more, some of the most liberal of the radicals said one could even become part of their still very much Jewish community without first becoming an actual Jew. You could join the community and not be circumcised. The schism between Judaism and what would become Christianity was in its infancy. And this notion of joining an observant Jewish community, one that accepted the growing centrality of Jesus in its understanding, without first being circumcised, without following proper Jewish biblical protocol, was nothing short of heresy. They could point to it in their Bibles. It's actually all still in the Bibles. And in the midst of this extreme tension, this schism of ideas, who's in and who's out, and what does the Bible have to say about all that? Peter, that disciple on whom it was said Jesus was going to build a new church, Peter had a vision. Listen to it now. Now the apostles... And the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. This was startling. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to the uncircumcised men and eat with them? Table fellowship seems always to have been a problem for Jesus and his disciples. Eating with those people? What are you doing? Then Peter began to explain to them step by step, step by step, saying, Well, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a great sheet coming down out of heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. And as I looked at it, I saw four-footed animals beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. And I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter. Go and kill and eat. But I replied, 
by no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. You see, Peter knew his Bible, and his Bible told him literally, explicitly what he could and could not eat. It was in the Bible. It's still in the Bible. You can check it out today when you go home and take out your Bible and look at Leviticus. It's all still there, black and white, literally in the Bible. But despite those literal words, a second time the voice answered from heaven, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again into heaven. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. Folks, you need to let that sink in. This was a vision, a new understanding that Peter had that explicitly contradicts the literal words of the Bible. Explicitly contradicts the literal words of the Bible. The words are still there that told Peter what was clean and what was unclean, what to eat and what was not to eat. His vision contradicted the literal words of the Bible. But Peter said, but God told me otherwise. I hope you can hear the modern-day parallels with the angry fundamentalists, the self-assured evangelicals who want to wave their Bible in Amy's face for daring to stand in this pulpit. The Bible says women are to keep silence in the churches. The angry fundamentalists who want to challenge our church for daringly welcoming our gay brothers and sisters into full fellowship. It's in the Bible. But Peter says God has given a new vision. And Peter continues... At that very moment, after he saw that vision, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. Now to make this story filled with even more conflict and controversy, earlier in this chapter we have been told that these men were messengers of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And Cornelius had also had his vision. His vision had said that a man named Peter had a message for him. So Peter says, the Spirit told me to go with these men and not to make a distinction between them and us. Not to make a distinction between a good Jew and a Roman centurion. They were Romans. They were pagans. They were part of the oppressing government. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man Cornelius' house. He told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. Can you imagine the vision that Cornelius and his entire Roman pagan house would be considered part of the family of God. And as I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning. 
And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that God has given us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? Despite what the Bible said, despite what the religious teachers said, despite what the culture said, who was I to hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. You have heard the ancient story. In the book of Isaiah, reflecting political and military and economic anxieties of his day, six centuries before Jesus, God reminds the people, do not remember the former things or consider the things of old, for I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? This forward movement is seen throughout the biblical story. It might be the essence of biblical faith itself. God is always doing a new thing. The question is, can we perceive it? The church has come to these moments of crisis many times in its history. And I understand that once again it is frightening. The change, the newness, the unknown is frightening always. I understand the instinct to cling to the past, to traditional understandings of faith and practice, I understand the concerns that come with new ways of seeing the world in bold, strange, new paradigms of thought. When I try to put myself in the shoes of conservatives, of evangelical Christians who sincerely believe they are just affirming the Bible's prescription for sexual ethics or practices of church and state or theological requirements for salvation, and I do try to put myself in their shoes, I understand that the last 20 years might feel like a tumult of change, like movement toward an ungodly secularism, I can understand. But we have been there before, many times. And each time, God has been revealed to us in the new, not the old. In the future, not in the past. Now, I'm not a historian. But I believe you can check me out on this, that all the great movements of history have been toward the progressive, broader understandings, what would have to be called a more liberal practice in church and society, more inclusion and acceptance, more rights, more freedom, not less. In our history, we have moved too slowly but consistently from tyranny towards democracy, towards, we're not always all, all the way there yet, from parochial authoritarianism towards the scientific age of exploration, from patriarchy towards equality, from slavery towards freedom, from hierarchy towards egalitarianism, from the binary towards the non-binary, 
from a zero-sum game of winner-takes-all to a non-zero-sum of win-win, from the confidence of absolutes to the humility of grace, God's grace, bigger, broader, more loving, more filled with wonder and excitement and newness and newness and ever more newness. God was with our ancestors in the past, but they found God leading them into the future. And that's where we will find God today. As we look to Peter, we can see a bold and daring vision, a vision that seemed to diametrically oppose the Word of God, as the fundamentalists like to say it. But Peter dared to trust the vision, to lean into his instinct that saw in the eyes of the Gentiles, even in a Roman centurion, a brother, not an enemy, not an outsider, not one who is condemned of God as different and excluded, but as one to be accepted and affirmed and loved, even a Roman centurion. You remember those concentric circles I talked about recently? Bigger and bigger and bigger. God's grace. I take it as a privilege to be part of the body of Christ that is moving forward, that is forward-looking, I feel privileged to be part of a people who can see the change of our day, not as heresy, not as a contradiction of the Bible, but as the seamless movement of human history, the progression of humanity towards the ideal for humanity that God has been working from the very beginning. There are no new ideas only new ways of making them felt. God has had freedom and liberation in mind for the people from the very beginning. We will not need to throw out our Bibles. We will need to learn to read them new just like Peter did. And in reading anew, we will find the God of grace and mercy. The same God our ancient ancestors claimed, who was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I take it as a privilege to be part of a people who have been given the same vision that Peter accepted so long ago and can affirm, as Peter affirmed at the conclusion of his story, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. Those are bold words. God shows no partiality. Now what about me? Who am I to hinder God? It is our privilege to have received that revelation, so it is our responsibility to communicate that truth carefully, lovingly, not with angry tweets and shared sarcastic Facebook posts, not with dogmatic certainty and Bible-thumping condemnation, but with lives filled with the integrity of faith and lived in compassion and love. How do you share that vision with your own family and friends? Like Peter, all we can say is this is my experience. This is what God has shown me. This is the kind of welcome I have seen in Jesus. It is a new, perhaps frightening day, but God has given us a vision. Who am I 
that I could hinder God. May it not be so today. Amen.